I'm Judy Cooper, the coordinator of public programs. Thank you all for coming tonight. I love it when authors really adopt social media and um, Facebook and Twitter because I have had the pleasure of following Tayari as she's gone to Portland and um, Seattle and Michigan and Atlanta and just seeing photographs of her with all of her fans. It's been wonderful. Anyway, about Silver Sparrow, it's been getting rave reviews from critics and readers alike. Um, in the Washington Post, novelist Anita Shreve wrote, or she described Silver Sparrow as an absorbing novel with a vivid cast of characters. And those of you who um, are reading it, who have read it, will, I think will agree that that's very pertinent. Um, and she also wrote, um, Jones writes dialogue that is realistic and sparkling, with an intuitive sense of how much to reveal and when. Tayari's two previous novels were also well-received. Her first, Leaving Atlanta, received Best of the Year awards from the Washington Post and the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And her second book, The Untelling, won the Lillian C. Smith Award from the Southern Regional Council. Um, Tayari holds degrees from Spelman College, Arizona State University, and the University of Iowa. And she's on the MFA uh, writing fac creative writing faculty at Rutgers University. Although she's, um, she's going to have something exciting to tell you about where she's going to be next year. So please join me in welcoming Tayari Jones. Thank you for that introduction and for the invitation to come here. I will tell you that every time I publish a book, I will always come to this library because this library hosted me with my first book. And on your first book, if someone hosts you on your first book, it's such a gesture of faith and support for a person who, you know, who's unknown. And I'll always, that's like support that you can't, or you haven't earned it yet. It's completely a gift. And so I will always return to all the places that I went to on my first book tour. So I wanted to give a special thanks to this library. And I have been on this um, whirlwind tour. I've been to about 26 places over the last 40-something um, days. And it's been really amazing going all around the country talking to different people about talking to people about this book, Silver Sparrow, which is a story about two young ladies who have the same father. One knows it and one doesn't, because I think that it is kind of uncovering a dynamic that we have in our culture that we don't talk about. You know, I, I think that we don't talk much about the lives of children who live in the shadows. And I'm going to read to you from the, fir the first chapter of Silver Sparrow, and then I thought we'd talk about it. The novel begins with a poem written by Natasha Trethaway, and she allowed me to publish this poem in my book before it's in her book. So I like to start by reading it because it was such a gift for her to do that. It's called A Daughter is a Colony. A territory, a progeny, a spitting image like Athena sprung from her father's head, chip off the old block, issue and spawn, a namesake, a wishbone, loyalist and traitor, a native and other, a subject, a study, a history, a half-blood, a continent dark and strange. Chapter 1, The Secret. My father, James Witherspoon, is a bigamist. He was already married 10 years when he first clamped eyes on my mother. 
1968, she was working at the gift wrap counter at Davison's downtown when my father asked her to wrap the carving knife he had bought his wife for their wedding anniversary. Mother says that she knew that something wasn't right between a man and a woman when the gift was a blade. I said that maybe it means there's some kind of trust between them. I love my mother, but we tend to see things a little bit differently. The point is that James's marriage was never hidden from us. James is what I call him. His other daughter, Charisse, the one who grew up in the house with him, she calls him daddy even now. When most people think of bigamy, if they think of it at all, they imagine some primitive practice taking place on the pages of National Geographic. In Atlanta, we remember one sect of the Back to Africa movement that used to run bakeries in the West End. Some people said it was a cult. Others called it a cultural movement. Whatever it was, it involved four wives for each husband. The bakeries have since closed down, but sometimes we still see the women resplendent in white trailing six humble paces behind their mutual husband. Even in Baptist churches, ushers keep smelling salts on the ready for the new widow confronted at the wake by the other grieving widow and her stair-step kids. Undertakers and judges know that it happens all the time, and not just between religious fanatics, traveling salesmen, handsome sociopaths, and desperate women. It's a shame that there isn't a true name for a woman like my mother, Gwendolyn. My father, James, is a bigamist. That's what he is. Laverne is his wife. She found him first, and my mother has always respected the other woman's squatter's rights. But was my mother his wife, too? She has legal documents and even a single Polaroid proving that she stood with James Alexander Witherspoon, Jr. in front of a judge just over the state line in Alabama. However, to call her only his wife doesn't really explain the full complexity of her position. There are other terms, I know. And when she is tipsy, angry, or sad, mother uses them to describe herself. Concubine, whore, mistress, consort. There are just so many, and none are fair. And there are nasty words, too, for a person like me, the child of a person like her. But these words were not allowed in the air of our home. You are his daughter. End of story. If this was ever true, it was in the first four months of my life before Charisse, his legitimate daughter, was born. My mother recursed hearing me use that word, legitimate, but if she could hear the other word that formed in my head, she would close herself in her bedroom and cry. In my mind, Charisse was his real daughter. With wives, it only matters who gets there first. With daughters, the situation is a bit more complicated. It matters what you call things. Surveil was my mother's word. If he knew, James would probably say spy, but that's too sinister. We didn't do damage to anyone but ourselves as we trailed Charisse and Laverne while they wound their way through their easy lives. I had always imagined that we would eventually be asked to explain ourselves, to press words forward in our own defense. On that day, my mother would be called upon to do the talking. She is gifted with language and is able to layer difficult details in such a way that the result is smooth as water. She is a magician who can make the whole world feel like a dizzy illusion. The truth is a coin she pulls from behind your ear. Maybe mine was not a blissful girlhood. But is anyone's, even people whose parents are happily married to each other and no one else, even these people have their share of unhappiness. 
They spend plenty of time nursing old slights, rehashing squabbles. So, you see, I have something in common with the whole world. Mother didn't ruin my childhood or anyone's marriage. She's a good person. She prepared me. Life, you see, is all about knowing things. That is why my mother and I shouldn't be pitied. Yes, we have suffered, but we never doubted that we enjoyed at least one peculiar advantage when it came to what really mattered. I knew about Charisse. She didn't know about me. My mother knew about Laverne, but Laverne was under the impression that hers was an ordinary life. We never lost track of this basic and fundamental fact. When did I first discover that although I was an only child, my father was not my father and mine alone? I really can't say. It's something that I've known for as long as I've known I had a father. I can only say for sure when I learned that this type of double-duty daddy wasn't ordinary. I was about five years old in kindergarten when the art teacher, Miss Russell, asked us to draw pictures of our families. While all the other children scribbled with their crayons or soft-leaded pencils, I used a blue ink pen and drew James, Charisse, and Laverne. In the background was Raleigh, my father's best friend, the only person we knew from his other life. I drew him with the crayon labeled Flesh because he's really light-skinned. This was years and years ago, but I still remember. I hung a necklace around the wife's neck. I gave the girl a big smile stuffed with square teeth. Near the left margin, I drew my mother and me standing by ourselves. With the marker, I blacked in mother's long hair and curving lashes. On my own face, I drew only a pair of wide eyes. The art teacher approached me from behind. Now, who are these people you've drawn so beautifully? Charmed, I smiled up at her. My family... My daddy has two wives and two girls. Cocking her head, she said, I see. I didn't think much more about it. I was still enjoying the memory of the way she pronounced beautifully. To this day, when I hear anyone say that word, I feel loved. At the end of the month, I brought all my drawings home in a cardboard folder. James opened up his wallet, which he kept plump with $2 bills to reward me for my schoolwork. I saved the portrait, my masterpiece, for last, being as it was so beautifully drawn and everything. My father picked the page up from the table and held it close to his face like he was looking for a coded message. Mother stood behind me, crossed her arms over my chest, and bent to place a kiss on the top of my head. It's okay, she said. Did you tell your teacher who was in the picture, James said. I nodded slowly, the whole time thinking that I probably should lie, although I wasn't quite sure why. James, mother said, let's not make a molehill into a mountain. She's just a child. Gwen, he said, this is important. Don't look so scared. I'm not going to take her out behind the woodshed. Then he chuckled, but my mother didn't laugh. All she did was draw a picture. Kids draw pictures. Going in the kitchen, Gwen, James said, let me talk to my daughter. My mother said, why can't I stand here? She's my daughter, too. You're with her all the time. You tell me I don't spend enough time talking to her, so now let me talk. Mother hesitated and then released me. She's just a little kid, James. She doesn't even know the ins and outs yet. Trust me, James said. She left the room, but I don't know that she trusted him not to say something that would leave me wounded and broken wing for life. I could see it in her face. When she was upset, she moved her jaw around invisible gum. At night, I could hear her in her room, grinding her teeth in her sleep. 
The sound was like gravel under car wheels. Dana, come here. James was wearing a Navy chauffeur's uniform. His hat must have been in the car, but I could see the ridge mark across his forehead where the hat band usually rested. Come closer, he said. I hesitated, looking to the space in the doorway where Mother had disappeared. Dana, he said, you're not afraid of me, are you? You're not scared of your own father, are you? His voice sounded mournful, but I took it as a dare. No, sir, I said, taking a bold step forward. Don't call me sir, Dana. I'm not your boss. When you say that, it makes me feel like an overseer. I shrugged. Mother told me that I should always call him sir. With a sudden motion, he reached out for me and lifted me up on his lap. He spoke to me with both our faces looking outward, so I couldn't see his expression. Dana, I can't have you making drawings like the one you made for your art class. I can't have you doing things like that. What goes on in this house between your mother and me is grown people's business. I love you, you're my baby girl, and I love you, and I love your mama. But what we do in this house has to be a secret, okay? But I didn't even draw this house. James sighed and bounced me on his lap a little bit. What happens in my life, in my world, doesn't have anything to do with you. You can't tell your teacher that your daddy has another wife. You can't tell your teacher that my name is James Witherspoon. Atlanta ain't nothing but a country town, and everybody knows everybody. Your wife and your other girl is a secret, I asked him. He put me down from his lap so we could look each other in the face. No, nah, he said, you got it the wrong way around. Dana, you are the one that's a secret. Then he patted me on the head and tugged one of my braids. With a wink, he pulled out his billfold and separated three $2 bills from the stack. He handed them over to me, and I clamped them in my palm. Aren't you going to put them in your pocket? Yes, sir. And for once, he didn't tell me not to call him that. In the kitchen, my mother placed the bowls and plates on the glass table in silence. She wore her favorite apron that James brought back from New Orleans. On the front was a drawing of a crawfish holding a spatula aloft and a caption, Don't make me poison your food. James took his place at the head of the table and polished his water spots from his fork with his napkin. I didn't lay a hand on her. I didn't even raise my voice now, did I? No, sir. And this was entirely the truth, but I felt different than I had a few minutes before when I pulled my drawing out of its sleeve. My skin stayed the same, while this difference snuck in through a pore and attached itself to whatever brittle part forms my center. You are the secret. He'd said it with a smile, touching the tip of my nose with the pad of his finger. My mother came around and picked me up under the arms and sat me on a stack of phone books in my chair. She kissed my cheek and fixed my plate. Are you okay? I nodded. James ate his meal, spooning honey on a, dessert, on a dinner roll when my mother said there would be no dessert. He drank a big glass of Coke. Don't eat too much, my mother said. You know you have to eat again in a little while. I'm always happy to eat your food, Gwen, he said. I'm always happy to sit at your table. I don't know how I decided that my missing teeth were the problem, but I devised a plan to slide a piece of folded paper behind my top teeth to camouflage the pink space in the center of my smile. I was inspired by James, actually, who once told me how he had put cardboard in his shoes when he was little to make up for the holes in the soles. The paper was soggy, and the blue lines ran with my saliva. Mother caught me in the middle of this process. She walked into my room and lay across my twin bed, she liked to do this, just lie across my bed while I played with my toys or colored in my notebooks, watching me like I was a television show. She always smelled good, like flowery perfume, 
and sometimes like my father's cigarettes. What you doing, Petunia? Don't call me Petunia, I said, partially because I didn't like the name and partially because I wanted to see if I could talk with the paper in my mouth. Petunia is the name of a pig. Petunia is a flower, my mother said, a pretty one. It's Porky Pig's girlfriend. That's meant to be a joke, a pretty name for a pig, you see. A joke is supposed to be funny. It is funny. You're just in a bad mood. What are you doing with the paper? I'm trying to put my teeth back, I said, while trying to rearrange the sodden wad. How come? This seemed obvious as I took in my own reflection along with my mother's in the narrow mirror attached to the top of my chest of drawers. Of course James wanted to keep me a secret. Who could love a girl with a gaping pink hole in the middle of her mouth? None of the other girls in my kindergarten reading circle looked like I did. Certainly my mother could understand this. She spent half an hour each night squinting at her skin before a magnifying mirror. When I asked her what she was doing, she said, I am improving my appearance. Wives can afford to let themselves go, but concubines must be vigilant. Recalling it now, I know that she must have been drinking. Although I can't remember the moment so well, I know that just outside the frame was her glass of Asti Spumanti, golden and busy with bubbles. I'm improving my appearance, I said, hoping she would smile. Your appearance is perfect, Dana. You're five. You have beautiful skin, shiny eyes, and pretty hair. But no teeth, I said. You're a little girl. You don't need teeth. Yes, I do, I said quietly. Yes, I do. Why? To eat corn on the cob? Your teeth will grow back. There is lots of corn in your future. I want to be like that other girl, I said finally. Mother had been lying across my bed like a goddess on a chaise, but when I said that, she snapped up. What other girl? James's other girl. You can say her name, Mother said. I shook my head. I can't. Yes, you can. Just say it. Her name is Charisse. Stop it, I said, afraid that just saying my sister's name would unleash some terrible magic, the way that saying Bloody Mary while staring into a pan of water would turn the liquid red and thick. Mother rose from the bed and got down on her knees so we were the same height. As she pressed her hands down on my shoulders, traces of cigarette smoke lingered in her tumbly hair. Her name is Charisse, my mother said again. She's a little girl just like you are. Please stop saying it, I begged her. Stop it before something happens. My mother hugged me to her chest. What did your daddy say to you the other day? Tell me what he said. Nothing, I whispered. Dana, you can't lie to me, okay? I tell you everything and you tell me everything. That's the only way we can pull this off, baby. We got to keep the information moving between us. She shook me a little bit, not enough to scare me, but just enough to get my attention. He said I was a secret. My mother pulled me into a close hug, crisscrossing her arms around my back and letting her hair hang around me like a magic curtain. That motherfucker, she said. I love him, but I might just have to kill him one day. The next morning, my mother told me to put on the green and yellow dress I'd worn for my school picture six weeks earlier before the teeth were lost. She styled my long hair with slippery ribbons and strapped my feet into stiff, shiny shoes. Then we climbed into my godmother's old Buick, on loan for the day. Where are we going? Mother turned off Gordon Road. I'm taking you to see something. I waited for more information, poking my tongue into the slick space where my nice teeth had once been. She didn't say anything else about our destination, but she had me recite my at words. H-A-T is hat. B-A-T is bat. 
I didn't stop until I got to M-A-T is Matt. By then, we pulled up in front of a small pink school building trimmed in green. Down the road was John A. White Park. We sat in the car a long time while I performed for her. I was glad to do it. I recited my numbers from 1 to 100, and I sang Frere Jacques. When a group of children spilled out into the yard of the small school, my mother held up a finger to stop my singing. Roll down your window and look out, she said. You see that chubby little girl in the blue jeans and the red shirt? That's Charisse. I found the girl my mother described standing in a line with a group of other little kids. Charisse was utterly ordinary back then. Her hair was divided into two short puffs in the front, and the shorter hair in the back was held down in a series of tight braids. Look at her, my mother said. She hardly has any hair. She's going to be fat when she grows up just like her mammy. She doesn't know her at words, and she cannot sing a song in French. I said, she has her teeth. For now, she's your age, so they're probably loose. But here's something you can't see. She was born too early, so she has problems. The doctor had to stick plastic tubes down her ears to keep them from getting infected. But James loves her. She's not a secret. James has an obligation to her mammy, and that's my problem, not yours, okay? James loves you equal to Charisse. If he had any sense, he'd love you best. You're smarter, more mannerable, and you've got better hair. But what you have is equal love, and that's good enough. I nodded as relief spread all over my body. I felt all my muscles relax. Even my feet let go and settled themselves limp in my pretty shoes. Am I a secret? I asked my mother. No, she said. You are an unknown. That little girl doesn't even know she has a sister, but you know everything. God knows everything, I said. He's got the whole world in his hands. That's true, my mother said. That's true. And so do we. Thank you. And so now I'll be happy to talk to you and take any questions that you may have. I don't have a favorite character. I like whatever character I'm writing about at the moment. Like, I feel like if I don't fully commit to each character, they're going to fall flat on the page. So whenever I'm writing each one, I have to, like, get into them. But I can answer other questions about the differences between them. Like, what do you, what do you want to know about them? Well, I was trying really hard when I was writing it not to get judgy because I feel like if you start getting judgy when you write, you start writing the story to avenge one character or the other. And then your story, it's like your story starts leaning in that direction. Everything starts falling off the table. You know, like you can't, you, so you have to keep the boat upright. So I had to, like I tell my students that every character has to have a legitimate point. So I tried to think, like, what is everybody's point in this thing? And the hardest person to get a legitimate point for was James. Because he's, he, has this, he has a perfectly good family, and then he just, like, starts up another family. Like, his wife didn't do anything to provoke him. He just decides he's going to have another family. And I was like, what is he thinking? And then I said, oh, I know what he's thinking. This is what he's thinking. He thinks like this. He thinks, every time in my life a woman has come to me and said she's having my baby, I have married her. He's like, I did the right thing every time. I never left anybody who needed marrying unmarried. And he can't see why everybody's mad at him. But you see, but it has its own kind of internal logic. It's true. He did not leave anybody unmarried. Everybody that needed somebody to marry had somebody to marry. And so when you kind of get your character's motivations and you give them a motivation that is not kind of anchored in something that's, I don't know, 
like something that's okay in the heart, then I feel like it helps you balance out your story. You know, it depends also on the other things going on in my life. I think that's really important. I moved like three times. It took me five years to write this book, but I lived in three different cities. And when I'm moving and doing other things, I have to say I'm not writing. And I have to confess that I don't write every day because I don't have time. You know, I work. I do all these other things. I try to set time aside for my writing. But I do believe that even if you don't have time to write every day, you'll eventually finish your book. So I think part of the reason this took me so long was that, you know, I just was doing a lot of other things. I wrote my first book in two years because I was in school, and it was the only thing I had to think about. So I think that two years is probably how long it takes me to write a book if I have only that to do. But I think, you know, different people write differently. Like, I write 900 pages to get 300 pages. But it's also because there are two kinds of writers. They're, my teacher used to tell me they're gushers and eakers. I'm a gusher. People who are gushers, we write in order to find a story. We write, 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 write to figure out what we're doing. But there are some people who are eakers, and they think, 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 think to decide what to write. So the thing that the eakers are doing in their head, I'm doing on the page. People who eek, they don't do a lot of rewrites, because by the time they write it, they've been working on it so long in their head. But I'm more of a spontaneous writer. Like, I write, and I surprise myself with what I've written. Like, sometimes the characters do something. I'm like, oh, that's so interesting. It's almost like I didn't write it when I go back and read it, because I write so fast. But also, I write, just like anybody does anything so fast, I often write so wrong. Like, I write a lot of things that I can't use because it's ridiculous. And I have to go back and do it again. But I like that kind of spontaneity. What is it that keeps drawing you back to, to that place and that time for your work? Well, Atlanta is my hometown. And that is no small detail in my kind of understanding of why I write about it. That's almost like saying, I know it's your life, but why do you write about it? Like, it's the place where my obsessions are. And also, it's a city that I know best. Having known one city so well, when I try to write about other cities, I feel like I don't quite know what I'm doing because I don't know it as well as I know Atlanta. You know, I, feel, I, just, I don't feel like my footing is strong enough in those other cities, even though I've lived a lot of places. I've lived in New Jersey for going on four years, and that's the longest I've lived anywhere in the last 20 years. So I don't feel I just don't have enough grip. And also, Atlanta is endlessly fascinating it is first off it's a city that's really growing so there's always new stuff to write about in Atlanta and then there's like Atlanta's fascinating history having been like thought to be black mecca in the 70s and then the disillusionment following after the 70s didn't turn out to be the 60s and 70s didn't turn out to be what people thought they were going to be we have Dr. King right there like there's just so much to write about if you want to write about what you the evolution of American history and how it plays out in individual lives. I feel like Atlanta is a really rich place for it. But then again, I'm sure other cities are equally rich, but I think you have to really know the city to know how rich it is historically. Because I'm interested in the history that doesn't get written down. Because people say, well, you can do research, but the kind of history that I'm always interested in, I'm interested in the history of people whose history hasn't been written down, so that you can't like, go to the Beinecke Library you know, at Yale and research. Like, you can't go to the Beinecke and say, what were black girls doing on the weekend in 1985 in Atlanta, Georgia? It's not going to be written anywhere. Someone eventually is going to go to a library and look at my book to find out this. So I try to record what I know, and that city is what I know. Which book you found most interesting and fun to write, and now that all three are done, which one is your favorite? You know, 
Each book is so different. Like I wrote Leaving Atlanta about growing up in Atlanta during the Atlanta child murders. Well, that book is always going to be special to me because it's a coming-of-age story that's based so closely on my own childhood so that it has a certain kind of personal value to me. That, and also your first book. With your first book, you teach yourself that you can actually write a book. Because your first book, you didn't know if you could write a book. And you found out you could write a book. So I look at that as kind of like my first love. Like, you know, your later loves are going to be better than your first love because you didn't know what you were doing. But your first love has a kind of zip to it because you didn't know what you were doing. So I think I'll always love that one. And my second book, The Untelling, about a family that um, survives a fatal car crash, that one was really hard to write because I've never been, I've never been in a car crash. I didn't, I didn't really, hadn't traveled a lot of the emotional ground in the story. And so... I felt like it was a very interesting book to write because I was really exploring a concept I hadn't quite thought about before. And then this one is really important to me because, okay, with your first book, you think you can't publish it because no one knows who you are. You say, no one's going to publish this book. They don't know who I am. But by your third book, there are records of who you are. Like, you know, there's your book sales, your track record, et cetera. By your third book, you think no one's going to publish this book because they know exactly who I am. You see? So it's a different kind of it's a different kind of stress. So it's, so there was a time with this book when it did not look like I was going to be able to find a publisher for it. I had written a hundred pages and had it, sent it out, and no one was interested in it because my my name you know my name wasn't big enough. You know it was kind of a very cynical moment in publishing, and I had to decide to finish this book even though I had been all but guaranteed that it would not be published, because I had to say to myself, Am I a writer? who writes a book to please a publisher, or do I write a book because I feel it's important? Do I feel it's important to examine this idea of kids who live in the shadows, these ways that we have families that are our families and aren't our families? Like, if I felt that this story was important enough to write the 100 pages, I had to be writer enough, woman enough to finish it, even though it had been guaranteed that it wasn't going to go anywhere. And so I did finish it. And I feel that once I committed to this book, the universe committed back to me. I finished this book, I committed to finishing it, and then I got a phone call from the United States Artists Foundation telling me they had awarded me a grant, a grant to finish it. They awarded me a $50,000 grant to finish the book. So I was able to take off from my job and write the book. And then, I still didn't have a publisher, it had been pre-rejected, what have you. And then after I did that, I was just somewhere and I gave a reading. I was such a sad little person, I gave this reading. And a woman um, approached me and said that she had heard what had happened with my publisher, and she went to introduce me to someone. And she introduced me to Algonquin Books, who published this book. And it was like a fairy tale, because the woman who led me over, she didn't tell me her name or anything like that. And I was kind of felt weird. You know, you would feel weird if a stranger said to you, I heard you can't get your book published. I was just like, oh my goodness, are strangers talking about my inability to publish my book? <laughs> you know, I thought I was keeping it together. And, but anyway, it turned out the um, person she introduced me to said, oh, and by the way, she said, you know, how do you know Judy? And I said, you know, I don't know anyone named Judy. And she says, no, 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 Judy Bloom, who brought you here. So it was like my childhood oh my God. rescued me. I looked in the crowd, and she was gone. It was like she vanished. I felt like Cinderella, like my pumpkin is a coach, you know. But I really feel it's because I committed back to the book. Like I decided I committed back to art, and then everything else just worked out, you know. And now I'm going on. 50-city book tour. I'm the person who they said, you know, this book wasn't going anywhere, and now it's going everywhere. But I think it's because I had, it was just a way of making me remember what art is for. I can't why believe y'all don't want to talk about Why is everyone bigamy. so shy tonight? 
Which writers inspire you? What writers inspire me? Mm -hmm. In real life or on the page? Because life. it really is different. Like on, on the page, if anybody knows anything about me, could probably answer this question. I have such an unhealthy obsession with Toni Morrison. I think about her every day. I thought about her this morning. I was doing my hair. I said, I wonder if Toni Morrison is doing her hair. Like I think about Toni Morrison all the time. I think she is, I think she is a genius. I mean, and I don't just throw that word around. You know you hear people calling all kinds of people geniuses. I don't call people, I don't call anybody a genius except for Toni Morrison. Because, you know, I think she is, like, the greatest living American genius. I think she is superior to Faulkner. When they compare her to Faulkner, I think the honor is all Faulkner's. So I think about her a lot in that way. I think about, you know, just her phrasing, how audacious she is with plots. But when I think about what writers kind of inspired me and how I want to live my life, I'll have to go to my first mentor, Pearl Clegg. She was my teacher when I was just a girl. I was 17 years old, talking about I want to be a writer. And she said, I could see that. And I was like, you can? Mm -hmm. And, you know, she really took me under her wing. And to this day, you know, she's the person that keeps me on the path and grounded. And she showed me how not only to live a life as a writer, but also just, like, how to live a life kind of as a free woman. You know, how to try to make your life the life you want, even if you've never seen it before. I have two questions. First of all, did Pearl Clegg teach you at Spelman? Yes, she did. I'm the daughter and granddaughter of Spelmanites before her time. My question is, you have talked about the themes of your three books that you've mentioned today. I, don't, I still don't quite understand how you come up with the themes. Is it something that has always been in the back of your mind, or does some incident occur, or do you meet someone that... that pushes this into the forefront of your mind? How, how, do you, how, you, how do you decide what you're going to write about? You know, it's really very mysterious even to me. I look back on my computer at things I've written, and I know I wrote them because I recognize stuff that I, I know I wrote, but sometimes I don't even remember exactly the experience of doing it. But what I do know is that I have more direct in terms of like experiences that I have to end up in the book are little things. Like there are lots of small moments in every book that I know exactly where I lifted that from. Like I, um, in Silver Sparrow, when my bigamist, bless his heart, is trying to explain himself, I know for a fact that I lifted every kind of strange bit of circular logic that makes sense only to him to a specific ex-boyfriend I used to have that... He said all that crazy stuff so earnestly with a straight face that I was able to lift that. You know, so even though I've never been, you know, in a, I've never been married to a bigamist, I don't know any bigamists, but just this way that people can look you in a straight face and say to you, love isn't always going to follow a rule book. You know, like you're the one that's inflexible, you know, that, that you don't understand. And he was so serious when he said that to me in real life. He looked me right in the face. Love is not going to always follow the rule book. And then I felt defensive. Like, you know, it made me feel like I was the person who couldn't get with the program. Then I snapped out of it. But I was able to use it for my bigamist here. That I was like, I, you know, what, what is something ridiculous that someone could say with a straight... I was like, I know somebody ridiculous. <laughs> and so I was able to use all of his greatest hits in this book. <laughs> but as far as the larger themes, one larger thing I do realize that I have been obsessed with far more than I realized is the idea of sisters and, and what we call half-sisters. Because I do have a sister... My father is not a big, I feel like every day I say, my daddy is not a bigamist. My daddy is not a bigamist. 
But I do have a sister, and we have the same father and different mothers. She grew up in Louisiana. I grew up in Atlanta. She's 11 years older than me. So we had very separate lives. But I have realized that all my life I've longed for a sister. I grew up in a house of boys, and I, I longed for a sister. And I had a sister, but I couldn't reach her. She was older than me and living far away. And I realized in every single one of my books, someone has a sister that's far away. And leaving Atlanta, I have my little girl, Octavia, and she's going to live with her father who lives far away, and he has a baby daughter. You see, so it's the same thing in the other direction. Um, in The Untelling, Aria has a sister who is older than her, and she can't reach her emotionally. She's always trying to reach her sister. So I feel like in this book, I took the sister thing head on. So I do think that that's an obsession of mine that's personal in a certain kind of way. But otherwise, it's just kind of like magic. Like, I don't know where, how it happens. No, the thing is, I'm going next year. I received a fellowship, and I'll be spending next year at Harvard researching my next book. Yeah. I'm really thrilled about it because it'll be the first time in my adult life that I'm not working. I don't, I don't have any responsibility. That's really what I'm there to do is just to write. And I've always wondered what kind of writer I would, if I had time. You know, because I'm always like, I don't have time. I'm working. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. So I'll have a whole year, and I also will have a research assistant. So I'm really excited about just taking the time. And also, this tour is killing me, so it will be beautiful, you know, in the fall just to, to, just to coast. I have invested in three new pairs of pajamas because <laughs> I'm going to wear them every day. Hey, it's good to see you for more like 20 minutes. It's nice to see you. Uh, I have a question that's directly related to the presence of a research assistant. So when you're... Um, you, you've got a lot of familiarity with Atlanta, but because you're covering Atlanta in different time periods, there are things about Atlanta that changes that your memory may fail you on. And I was wondering to what extent, where did you, if you didn't have a research assistant, where, what did you use to kind of research to the extent you did the place that you call home in order to make it true for the reader? Are you asking me if I have my facts straight? Professor. Girl, you know what I ask you. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you know what I ask you, you got your facts, that's what I mean. <laughs> oh, it's nice to have a PhD in the house. Um, I think that, I mean, we have fact checkers at my publisher. They have fact checkers. When I wrote Leaving Atlanta, it was more of an issue since I was doing with the, living with the historical moment of the Atlanta child murders. And, you know, we have fact checkers go through. The main thing, the hardest thing in Atlanta is the changing topography. It's getting, like, Atlanta, do y'all know Atlanta? Like, we, every few years we get go through something. We change the names of all the streets. Yeah, and I have someone go through and make sure that my streets are what they are when they're supposed to be. But for the most part, I just, I rely, because again, like if I have my characters, I don't know if there's anybody here, who's from, anybody here from Atlanta? No, but, okay. If my girls are going to go, if my characters are going to go see Purple Ring, they're going to go see the Greenbrier. I know that. You know, I can't look that up. Like this, yeah, like, I mean, I know King died in 68. Like, so I go with what I know and the kind of big historical moments, but the emotional shadings of it, I just go with my own, because it's not a, you know, it's not a sociological document, and I just go with that. I think it, I feel like I, I know my hometown really well. When the two girls were at the gas station. I, I don't spoil it for them. That's late in the book. Outside of Atlanta. But what was it like to write that? I mean, I was I'm so not gonna involved. Give, I'm not going to give it away, but I'm going to say that I was stuck on it, and I would tell people. People say, well, I'm like, my, my characters, they're stranded. I can't get them out. They're stuck. And I would go back and try to write it, but I had, I had to get them out. 
I needed a satisfactory feeling, and I, I tried so many different things happening. I had to rewrite it several times, but if, I do feel like with a scene, that once I get it right, I know it's right. Oh, yeah. And when it's wrong, I know it's wrong. So I just kept rewriting it, rewriting it. So every possible chain of events in that scene happened in my drafts until I got one that, was, that worked. It was good. Thank you. Thank you. It was once three chapters long, then I made it two. Because it felt like I was taking 70 pages on something that happened in 20 minutes. You know, and so I had, to, I had to work on the pacing a lot. But this is the plottiest book I ever wrote. You know, like, it's got a lot of engine in it. And I've never written a book that has that much, you know, tension in it. Um, all of your books are set in, in, in Atlanta. Yes. And now you've moved. You're going to be at Harvard. Are you going to change the locale? Or are you just going to go... Go back home in your mind. I had this idea that I was going to write my next novel, kind of a boomerangy novel about a character set in the 30s that leaves Atlanta to, you know, like during the Great Migration and goes north, but then comes back. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, you never see people coming back. And I'm, I'm really interested, although I saw that article in the New York Times saying that a lot of people are, are coming back south. But I wanted to write about that. I originally wanted to write a novel about the girlfriend of Bigger Thomas and Native Son. Yeah, it's illegal. You can't do that. Just heads up. Yeah, you can't do that. And I was so devastated because I had been doing my research on her because she was a, character, a person that had, you know, had migrated from the south to the north. And I was really interested in her life because that was a, kind of a hole in my education from when I was at Spelman. I was in Dr. Gloria Gale's class, and we read Native Son, and she came in the classroom, and she... She has a really scratchy voice, eccentric teacher. She was always looking for her glasses, but they were on her face. You know, she's very eccentric and passionate. And she asked us, she said, did Bigger Thomas kill on purpose? And we got into this big debate on whether or not he killed, you know, the daughter of his white employers because the racism made him do it, or did he have free will, and is society to blame? You know, we just went on and on. And she told us, she said, silence. You know, none of you remember that he killed his girlfriend, Bessie. She said, you don't deserve to be students at Spelman College if you don't care about Bessie. And we felt really, she like walked out. She just walked out. She was like, bye. And she walked out. And I felt really bad about that, creatively and intellectually. I felt really, really bad about that. And so then I decided I was going to write this novel from the point of view of Bessie and like avenge her. Like that was going to be my project. But it's illegal. You can only, American copyright laws are far stricter than in other countries. And so those characters belong to the right estate. And you can't, it would technically be as though I was writing an unauthorized sequel. Now, you say that, but somebody wrote a book about... Um, Gone with the Wind. Got yeah, sued. she got... But then it was another, um, the guy in uh, Mark Twain, somebody... That's anything before 1923. Okay. I know. I know. I called a lawyer. I cried. The lawyer didn't even charge, didn't even charge me. He said, I cannot charge you for breaking your heart. That's what he said. Yeah, it, I was really, really... I mean, it's so troubling. I, I don't even, it just bothers me even to think about it. Because, I mean, I had started the project, but you can't do it. I can't believe y'all don't want to know about bigamy. <laughs> Secret siblings. Man sharing. I don't talk career with anyone who hasn't finished their book. That's the first thing. I tell them, I'll, fin- I'll help you finish your book. And if you finish your book, even after you've graduated, you can come back to me and we can talk agents, we can talk publishing. But if you haven't finished your book yet, let's not talk about that because there's nothing you can find out about the industry that will help you finish your book. I tell them it's going to take a long time, and I tell them it's going to be really hard, but you can do it. I think that's the thing, that to let people know that it's hard work and it's going to take a long, long time. 
and I look at their drafts. And when I look at a student's draft, I try to give them enough feedback to do one more draft. And if they do one more draft and they want to keep going, then we'll do one more draft. I try not to overwhelm them with like all the problems in the story. I just take it one step, one step. And I think that's my main advice to them. It's just take it what you can do each step. Because the race, the thing about writing, I was not the most brilliant student in my MFA class, but nobody worked harder than me. And no one stuck with it as long as I did. And therefore, I'm the one of all of them that right now, because it's a long race, but right now I have the most career probably out of any of them. But it's because I was the one who worked on it every, I worked on it every day. And I also know that as a teacher, you can't tell whose work is going to really blossom. It happens sometimes really quick, almost like, almost like they can, someone can be a terrible writer and then over the course of a year figure it out, like whatever piece was missing, and then they're good. So I, that's one thing that I know as a teacher is that I work with everybody, even if, whether they look promising or not, because you really can't tell. Tom said to me, characterized Atlanta as a village and I wondered if that is a true characterization of Atlanta would the situation of these two families exist without the the I guess you call it the primary family knowing about the other well that's what makes it complicated to pull off your bigamy is that people do know people people talk it's harder, though, now to get the Internet has made it where I think, yeah, I, good luck trying to be a bigamist, you know, in the age of Facebook. But this is said in the 80s when there is no Facebook. Mm-hmm. I think that what makes this kind of bigamy possible is that a woman and her daughter have agreed to live in silence and shame, that the shame is what makes it, what makes it possible, that when people feel actual shame, people will do anything to keep something they're ashamed of secret. Like, you don't even have to, when people feel shame, you don't have to watch them to make sure that they don't tell it because they are invested in telling it. So Dana is born into shame. And since I finished, since I published this book a month ago, this book has only been out a month. It was published on May 24th. I have received no fewer than 25 email messages from people who say, they say, even a man wrote me and said, I'm a silver sparrow that people who've grown up in this kind of shame, and the reason they appropriate the title of the book is that there is no dignified language to talk about people who are born under these circumstances. There's no, way, no, there's no nice way to say that. And so just think, you know, like Dana says in the book, it matters what you call things, that if you are a person that the circumstances under which you came to be, there is no polite word for it, you will not tell anyone. I mean, we hear all the time about these men having these secret families, and the secret families are always discovered. The women don't come forth. They're always discovered because they're ashamed. And that's how this man is able to do this. You know, one, white, one woman knows, and she has that shame. And I think that's what makes it possible. Does the issue, uh, does the issue of bigamy change it? In other words, um, men could have another child but not be married to the mother of that child? It's the same thing if they're hanging out over there. You know what I mean? If, you're, if they're married or not, I think it's the same thing. If in he other has words, a, if they have a relationship. If they have a the relationship same. with him, it's the same thing. I mean, this, in this case, the woman gets him to marry her because she just wants something to hold on to like anybody else would. I think this is a novel about how far people will go to have a family. Like everybody in this story wants a family, and they will do, go to any lengths to have a family. They make a lot of bad decisions for really good reasons, is what I think about this book. Why bigamy um, as opposed to 
um, any of the other ills that may befall our community? Well, you know, when I'm writing, first when I write a story, I just kind of think about what's interesting to me. Like, I don't, I don't really think about it that way. But I think this thing about secret paternity, I actually don't think this is um, a black problem per se. I think it's a, pro- it's a foundation of Western literature. Like, if you remember in high school reading the Greek myths, It's all about Zeus and his outside children, right? Hercules, Prometheus, and his wife being mad about them. I mean, like, that is the foundation of Western literature. And and even the slave narrative is very much, uh, very often in the slave narrative, much in opening chapter, is I am the son of this plantation owner, yet I am a slave. It's, yeah, Frederick Douglass. You know, that's that's often the story. That's how it starts. Like the the idea of unclaimed, yeah, unclaimed paternity. I mean, it happens all the time. And even in like trashy um, B-grade movies, there's a boy, there's a girl, they fall in love, and what do they find out? (laughs) Unacknowledged paternity. So I feel like it's it's something that we can't get our heads around, and we it's it's a unacknowledged paternity is the real. This secret paternity is the real cultural taboo. Adultery is not a real taboo. Adultery is like frowned upon. But it's that when there are children that happen as a result, then that is when the ta- that's when it becomes shame and secrecy. Mm-hmm. You know, like when, if you think about it, we get scandalized at John Edwards and what's, you know what I'm talking about, Schwarzenegger. We get scandalized because there are children. Right. Not that they have an affair, but that there are children. And so that's where the real taboo is. And as a writer, I mean... That's where you want to go. That's where the, sto- the story is, where the taboo is. Were there any, um, speaking of Edwards and Schwarzenegger, were there any real-life bigamists that inspired you? Um, or the characters that... S- <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I was just really... You know, you hear these stories all the time, right? Like, hasn't everyone heard a story where the man dies... Yes, and everybody shows, yeah, like everyone has just heard of that. Like it wasn't, I didn't have a bigamist in particular because, again, because this idea of these outside outside children, as we call them, are a real taboo, you don't even know people even though you know people because it is an actual, it is an actual taboo. Like people do not admit it, people do not talk about it. I am sure that you know people. I'm sure everyone in this room knows someone. I'm sure there's someone in this room who is a Silver Sparrow son or daughter, but it is not something you can talk about. The shame, I mean, is overwhelming, so you don't know it that you know it. It's like in the 50s and 60s when if, someone, if a woman got pregnant and she wasn't married, it was like the end of the world. Yeah. Like they would be sent away. Think about the elaborate lies come people come the up. Sh- they say that the grandmother is the mother. They come up with this crazy yes. thing because the shame. It was a true taboo. The child would not even be made to know because they didn't want the child growing up with that. Like, that's what a real Then they find out as an adult. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. You know, a lot of times they're people, or, and sometimes they find out. Yeah, some people know and some people don't because it's an actual, it's a true taboo. Like, when something is an actual taboo, people don't talk about it. Anything that people whisper about, that ain't a real taboo. That's how, that's how you know it's a taboo when people don't talk about it. Yeah, they take it to the grave. That's a real taboo that people take. That's shame, like what shame really is. And I've been thinking a lot about these people who live their whole lives in shame. How horrible is that? And the only way they can really get past the shame is that we as a culture have to stop shaming them. Like we all have a role in that. 
You know, like I think about John Edwards' son, and everyone, no one says he's John Edwards' son. They say he's his love child. Or Schwarzenegger, or daughter, whatever, the daughter. Or Schwarzenegger, he says, I have talked to my wife and my children about this. I'm like, buddy, that other one, that's your children. You see, but just this thing, this understanding that when he says, I have talked to my wife and my children, nobody says, um, because we, we're all in this together, and that we have to figure out what to do because there are so many people like this, and it's not right. Oh, well, you know, I called it Silver Sparrow. I originally called this book Silver Girl, which isn't as good of a title now, but it was my title, and we had gone to, we had a cover with Silver Girl on it. And there was another book published, going to be published on the same day by this woman. She's like, she wrote a book about, called Silver Girl. It's kind of like how Stella got her groove back, but set in Nantucket. And she had the title. And this thing's being recorded. Okay. Anyway, she had the title. And they told me that I had to change my title because she already had the title. And it really hurt my feelings a lot. And it made me feel almost like Dana in the book, how whenever Dana wants something, they say, sorry, Charisse has it. You can't have it. Why? Just because she's Charisse and you're Dana. They're like, she, you, she's more famous than you. She has the title. You need a new title. And I was really angry. And, I, you know, I just felt marginalized by it. And... I had to come up with another title, and first I had to be open to having another title. I had to be open to the possibility that this could be a blessing in disguise. Because there was a part of me that didn't want a blessing in disguise. I wanted to be done wrong. You know how sometimes you're busy being outraged? But I had to come up with another title. And it turned out actually to be a blessing on more than one level, because I wrote this book in a kind of very isolated way. But when I had to come up with another title in a week, everybody in my life was suggesting titles. My daddy told me to call it, what do you mean that's your daddy? I said, I don't think that's going to be good, dad. My daddy said, people will buy that book. But a friend of mine noticed that his eye is on the sparrow is in this book about four times. And he was like, your title is in there. Your title is in there. And it was so perfect to use sparrow alluding to Dana because, you know, that's what she is. You know, she's the least of these. What you know, what you have done unto the least of these, you've done unto me. And she is the least in this thing. You know, she is the secret daughter. And so that's where the sparrow came from. And silver has a meaning in the context of the book. But it was really good because since everyone, like everybody in my life was coming up with titles. People I didn't hardly know, people at my job, like everybody was working on the title. And it made it feel like a group thing. It felt, yeah, I felt like, Everyone in my life came together. It felt like support in, in a way that I really needed, and I didn't know I needed, and that's how I came up with the title. Well, thank you very much for coming, y'all.